Hey, Climate Conscious listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to the C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can join the conversation using our Twitter handle at Climate One. Let us know what you think about powering America's future. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. Imagine living in a house that uses no fossil fuels to light, heat, and run the fridge. That's the goal of net zero. Sounds a bit chilly. The whole point was to be able to prove that we could have comfortable, affordable, functional, and that you wouldn't have to sacrifice anything. How about zero waste? Can we trim our garbage down to zero as well? Some of us who were in the business at the time said that's a little bit aggressive, but you can't, you can't get halfway there. You've got to just go for zero. But it's going to take a million little ways to get there. Getting down to zero. Up next on Climate One. is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Claire Schoen. These Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. towards a clean energy future entails reducing our carbon footprint. But can we actually shrink that footprint down to nothing? That's the idea behind net zero, using no more energy than the clean, green energy we can create. Around the country, some states, communities, and individuals are racing to zero. Today, we're taking a look at some net-zero innovations in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is a leader of the pack. Let's start at home. Greg talked to three people who are focused on creating net-zero housing. Anne Edminster's company is called Green Home Consultant. She's written the book Energy Free, Homes for a Small Planet. Daniel Simons is a principal architect with David Baker Associates. And Sven Thiessen actually lives in a net-zero home in Palo Alto, California. Here's our conversation about zeroing out your home. Sven Thiessen, let's begin with you. What possessed you to want to (laughs) pursue a net-zero energy home? So, as a chemical engineer and someone who's done a lot of climate work, I wanted to prove that you could have your cake and eat it too. And my wife's requirement was it had to be beautiful. And so it was beautiful. And then I was, it has to be functional and comfortable. And let's see how energy efficient we can make it. And so our small 5.9 kilowatt system powers the house. It also powers 10,000 miles of electric, carbon-free, zero-emission driving. And people don't notice, except in the summertime when it's really hot, they walk in and say, oh, this is really nice and cool. You must have your air conditioning cranked. And I get to say with this wonderful grin, I don't have an air conditioning system. All I have is good building orientation, a heck of a lot of insulation, and some shading on the sunny side. That's it. Do you have to be like Jimmy Carter and wear sweaters in the winter? So that was the whole point, was to be able to prove that we could have comfortable, affordable, functional, and that you wouldn't have to sacrifice anything. So no, I wear no shoes and T-shirt and shorts pretty much all year round inside. Anne Edminster, you wrote the book on net zero homes. Tell us about your home. We have a living roof. Um, We do have a solar array. It's quite petite, 2.4 kilowatts. We are not at net zero yet. We're doing that sort of incrementally. Um, Most recent, the installation of some New Zealand sheep's wool insulation. Both my kids want to climb in there and nap. Right. Is that expensive, sheep's wool from New Zealand? I was shielded from that fact by being an advisor to the company. 
Oh, inside <laughs> deal. Okay, all right. So the rest of us have to settle for Levi's or something else. Okay. Daniel Simons, tell us about your home. Um, well, so I actually don't live in a net zero home, but we've designed a couple of them. Um, the goal is really to make the buildings use as little energy as possible. And that's something I think that's applicable to anybody's home. I mean, any reduction that you can make, just, you know, switching from an incandescent bulb to an LED bulb or insulating your house or upgrading the windows, all of these things, you know, incrementally reduce the energy consumption of the entire built environment. And um, when you get down really, really low, then it's easy to put a small PV system on the roof and power the whole thing. And Edminster, we replaced the windows on our home and my head started to ache with all the R factor. There's factors that measure the light that comes through and the energy that doesn't come through. And it was mind boggling and I was very motivated, but it was very complex. How many people really want to bother with the complexity? And that's just one piece of a house, right? I think right now, one of the unique opportunities we have is it's still very much an innovator's world, zero net energy. And therefore, the people who are willing to play, they are in effect paving the path for the others in the future to sort of demonstrate what works, what's a good investment, what was maybe an uh, interesting idea, but not necessarily widely applicable. Daniel Simons, every architect these days claims to be green. How do you know who's really green and who's greenwashing? It's not easy yet. I think at some point in the not-too-distant future, a lot of the things that we're talking about are going to be code minimums, and everybody's going to be doing them, and it's not going to be... You won't have to do any research. You'll just go and hire a contractor, and they're going to build you a net-zero home because that's the only way we build things. But when you're on the cutting edge, it does take a little bit more of your own energy and willpower and, um, and thoughtfulness. Santisen, let's talk about cost. This is perceived to be an elite thing for people who got extra money, deep pockets. How much did you spend on your house? The rough estimate is less than 5% above and beyond what we would have paid for the house. So it's not a huge amount. The way I look at it was an investment in green jobs because they spent a lot more time on the framing and they spent a lot more time putting in insulation. We spent a lot more time doing air checks, those sort of pressurized tests to make sure the building was extremely well sealed. All that caulking paid off. And Edminster, one of the critiques of net zero homes is that they are this suburban single family home. But you say that there's actually some urban examples and it's not just this sort of suburban home with lots of roof area for solar, and et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, one of our real rock stars in the Net Zero Energy Coalition is a man named Sean Armstrong, who is developing multifamily affordable housing, reaching net zero energy up in Arcata. So these are unit buildings with 2650 units. And Sean has been finishing these projects and reaching these goals for about the last three years. How about the upgrade path, getting to zero with an existing building? Yeah. You're doing it incrementally. Is that slow and painful and costly? It's slow and costly. Personally, I think it's really fun. <laughs> I wouldn't call it painful at all. But um, yeah, there has to be a certain commitment. On the other hand, I'm a great believer in what I call opportunistic remodeling, which is if you're thinking about remodeling for whatever reason, there are always ancillary opportunities that you may not be aware of that you can take advantage of if you're already planning to do X, then you can do Y at the same time. How about dashboards? Some of these sophisticated buildings have dashboards. Does an energy dashboard really improve the performance? We're in this innovator edging into early adopter stage, and our audience for those products are like Prius drivers and are going to be interested. So I really believe that a dashboard should be in every zero net energy home. Um, it will be cool. We are the cool people, and we will make it cool so other people will want to be cool, too. <laughs> These people look cool. I mean, they look cool to me. Santisen, dashboard in your house? Uh, no. Don't need one. Or it's not... Not necessary. What are we going to do? Change out another LED light for another better LED light? Right now, no. I would rather have my daughter better potty trained to, to <laughs> poop at the back of the toilet as opposed to the front. We've got these dual flush toilets. <laughs> Yeah. That's a little, yeah, I mean, I've, yeah, I don't know where to go with that one. So um, I'm going to go to Daniel Simons and ask about water, uh, net zero water homes, uh, net zero water buildings. Is that a 
achievable? Is that real? It's totally achievable. I think there are many more hurdles to net zero water than there are to net zero energy. There's a lot of you know, public health issues associated with black water recycling, and you have to be really, really dedicated. And achieving net zero, it's not as important as it is to really think about having super water-efficient homes. We're talking about net zero buildings at Climate One. Daniel Simons is a principal with David Baker Architects. Our other guest is Anne Edminster, author of Energy Free, Homes for a Small Planet, and Sven Thiessen, owner of a net zero home in Palo Alto. I'm Greg Dalton. So let's go to uh, audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thanks. Um, I'm expanding the definition of home from uh, a single family home to like home of kids, meaning schools, kindergartens, home of uh, sick people, hospitals, uh, home of inmates, uh, prisons, and home of the worker bees, like being the office buildings. So I'm just curious if you have any examples of net zero in that like arena, so if, like the larger buildings. Institutional owners have a big incentive to save energy on things, Daniel There's Simons? a great, um, the West Berkeley Library is net zero energy. It's a really great building. It's a really nice library as well. So there are, there are lots of examples. There's also manufacturer of modular classrooms that just came out with a net zero energy module so that when you're doing the modulars on your local elementary school, they don't have to be those horrible little white boxes that they usually buy. They can be really nice and um, have no energy use. So yeah, I think there, is, there, there are tons of examples out there. Interesting. Let's have our next question at Climate One. Many people in San Francisco rent, including myself and my three housemates and I pay our utility bill. And in this situation, our landlord has no incentive to retrofit our building. So my question is, have you thought about this dilemma and is there any way to address it? And Edminster, really challenging question. I think that there are certain things that the occupant does control, all of the stuff we call plug loads. So we find that increasingly the loads are dominated by things like electronics. And you may or may not have the opportunity to decide about what appliances you're going to use um, when you don't have the opportunity to have an impact on the enclosure. It's a little bit tough, but Lawrence Berkeley Lab did a study a couple of years ago where they looked at 10 so-called deep energy retrofits. And one of the interesting conclusions that they arrived at was that there are two primary prongs to the strategy for achieving zero net energy, one being behavioral and the other being technological. So I'd say as a renter, you're kind of left with the behavioral as your primary strategy, unfortunately. But there are no zero net energy buildings without zero net energy occupants. Let's go to our next question. Yeah. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, John Tripp, entrepreneur and energy consultant. You were mentioning that for now, net zero homes and, and energy efficient homes tend to be the province of people who are innovators, early adopters. There was a, a mention about hopefully it'll eventually be building codes and it'll be easier for everybody. What crosses the gap? Palo Alto is, is dramatically expanding their green building code in terms of what they have expectations for. And this is one of the things they're looking at, net zero, uh, the German-Swedish passive house concept. So I, it's coming. It's coming. Last question. Welcome to Climate One. Hello. Thank you. I have the opposite of the uh, landlord-tenant problem. I have a great landlord, and she would like to do these things, but I receive all the benefits. And she's been gradually, painfully retrofitting. <laughs> Can you imagine ways that the incentives could shift so that landlords really do have an advantage to doing this, where the tenant receives so much of the benefit? I don't care because you're paying. You don't care because I'm paying. How do we solve that? It's a difficult thing. I mean, I think that there are economic models out there that if the utility burden for that renter is lower, that the rent can be higher. And even when affordable housing, that's the case. So there are ways that it could incent people. But um, in an existing situation, like you described, it would be very difficult to do. I mean, maybe you could figure out some way of splitting the difference with your landlord, you know, where if you could show that you save 20 bucks a month, you give them 10 or something like that. Mm-hmm. 
Greg Dalton has been talking about net zero homes with Ann Edminster, a green home consultant, Daniel Simons, a principal architect with David Baker Associates, and Sven Thiessen, a net zero homeowner. Free podcasts of this and other Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org. You're listening to Climate One. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Landfills are another target of the zero movement. Would it be possible to recycle and compost absolutely everything? Put nothing at all in the trash bin. That's the official goal of the city of San Francisco. Solutions in this and other California cities range from recycling competitions to carrying your trash on your back, just to feel how garbage is weighing us down. We're joined now by three people who are working on slimming our city's waistlines. Kevin Drew is the Residential Zero Waste Coordinator of the San Francisco Department of Environment. Lauren Hennessy is Outreach Manager at Sustainable Stanford. And Diana Deem is a sustainability consultant and founder of the Trash on Your Back Challenge. Here's Greg Dalton, Talking Trash. Diana, let's begin with you. You came up with this idea spontaneously of walking around with trash on your back. What prompted such a moment of insanity? It was a definite moment of insanity, which turned into something pretty cool. I was um, interviewing MIT at the time. I do a radio show as well, and and, uh, it's all about solutions for the planet. And one of the guys on the show was so excited. His name's Drew Jones. He's amazing. He's a wonderful guy. He's the executive director for MIT's Climate Simulation. And uh, he said, back in 1989, I was at Dartmouth College, and a bunch of radical buddies and I decided to go out and see what our impact was. So they walked around with their trash for a week. And I said, you know, Drew, that sounds like an idea that needs to be recycled. And he's like, you'll do it, Ty? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. What the heck? He's like, you're crazy. I go, you're crazy, or you thought of it. And I said, uh, I think I want to call this thing the trash on your back five-day challenge. And what ended up happening, we had 17 people in 16 states the first year, and that was four years ago. And it's a year-run event now, and uh, you can't even imagine how competitive people get. You know, colleges and universities and so on and so forth. The second year, we had about 2,500 people from around the world, 27 states and um, six countries. So when you see Israel and Australia and uh, the NFL got on board, and so did the Seattle Mariners, and that really push the competition. And, and kids are just grabbing onto this like in amazing ways. It's a math issue, if you think about it, you know, weighing things and, and measuring things. And, and it's also a, a science issue. So STEM is playing a huge role in this. So we're really trying to help everyone understand that we can create a zero-waste world. Great. Uh, Lauren Hennessy, you created a video that caught our attention, sort of a parody of a Megan Trainer video all about the base. So tell us how you came up with that video and what were you trying to do to inspire college kids to be more mindful about their waste? It's not just college kids. Um, we have a significant population of staff and faculty on campus, so it really needs to pertain to a wide audience. So I really sought to kind of come up with something that would just catch. Um, and I really have Wait, to say... Do, but do professors know who Megan Trainer is? You would not... I'm not kidding, they do. Okay. People right. are singing okay. this song. But I have to be honest, it really started when a friend sent me a YouTube link of a bunch of frat boys lip-syncing to a Taylor Swift song. And this video had half a million hits on YouTube. And I, it, I was just sitting there thinking, how they're not even doing anything. They're just mouthing the words to the song. There must be a way to get people talking about environmental and sustainable actions in the same kind of fashion. So it kind of struck me that music is this grand communicator that a lot of people don't really take advantage of. And I think it's been a crucial point that's missing in environmental communication. We're going to hear just a little riff of this uh, video. So let's cue up a little video. Uh, This is a riff at Stanford. We're all about no waste, about no waste at Stanford. We're all about no waste, about no waste at Stanford. We're all about no waste, about no waste. Thanks. 
So a video riffing on a pop tune, what impact did that have, Lauren Hennessy at Stanford? Well, I'm here today, aren't I? Yeah, right. <laughs> we, we found you on the internet because of uh, this video, yes. Um, so I, the video today on YouTube had close to 5,000 hits, which is 100 times greater than any of the other videos that were entered into the competition. We far exceeded our waste minimization in the competition than in years past. We doubled our participation in the competition than last year. So it really went far in as far as spreading awareness. Make it fun. Kevin, let's talk about the city of San Francisco has a zero waste goal. Where is San Francisco? Is zero waste really possible? Uh, Some of us who were in the business at the time said that's a little bit aggressive, but you can't you can't get halfway there you've got to just go for zero but it's going to take a million little ways to get there people getting charged up about it and carrying their trash on their back it's got to happen to college kids and the other folks on the campus to find a way to to get to zero waste it's like the organism that we are and the organism that the planet is it takes lots of little pieces to really get everything done you can see the big garbage truck driving by but the bacteria in your gut is doing just as much to keep your system going as that garbage truck, and it's everything in between. So zero waste is really a, a beautiful kind of a biological construct that we still have to invent. We don't know what it is yet. Uh, everybody's asking us, you know, uh, how are you going to get there? Do you have a precise plan? No, we're making it up as we go along, frankly. <laughs> and for God's sakes, yep. let's get out there and do it. I mean, that's, that's what we've just seen here. These are two new pieces that weren't here a year or a couple of years ago that now are here not because we set a zero-waste goal, but just because people get the idea and they want to go there. Specific question. I remember being in Starbucks a couple of years ago and seeing printed on a napkin, we care about the environment and the waste, et cetera. And then I looked for a place to recycle that napkin at Starbucks, mm-hmm. and I couldn't find one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So does the city of San Francisco require businesses to have receptacles for compost and recycling and that they're actually in a place that a human can see? Yes, we do. We require that. Is it perfectly implemented? No. We're getting there. And actually, Starbucks is one that we've worked a lot with. I think we need to get further with them because they have a lot of control. They have a lot of social ethic and a lot of their business so that they could be a tremendous leader if they would make their lids and their stirs compostable along with their cups and take some of the plastic out of the lining of their cup. Pretty much everything in the store would be compostable. And then in San Francisco, at least, you could always have a simple place for your Starbucks experience to be recovered. Then you start looking at around the world. If a Starbucks can do it here, why can't a Starbucks in New York or London do it? And then that's the basis of a compost program. If someone puts something in the compost bin at home Mm -hmm. or at the office, where does it go? Tell us briefly the life of a compost. It gets consolidated into bins in your house or your business, and it gets picked up by a ecology truck uh, and taken down to the transfer station where it's consolidated into a a big uh, 20-ton transfer trailer There are now 700 tons of organic material being collected every day in San Francisco. You end up with about 350 tons of finished compost. There's a tremendous water reduction because most of our food is water. That's a short story of where it goes right now. But what happens to it after that? Ah, Does does it come back to the fertilizer? Not so so much because we don't need so much compost here in San Francisco. It's primarily sold to vineyards, golf courses, organic farms. They like this compost. It's It's a very rich compost because it has a a lot of uh, meat and bones and other things. Most composts tend to be agricultural in nature, like from uh, leftover crops or leftover agricultural products. They're sort of one-dimensional. So this, we call it four-course compost because it has a little bit of every course in the meal in it, (laughs) and it's a very rich product because of that. We're talking about net zero waste at Climate One. Our guests are Kevin Drew, Residential Zero Waste Coordinator with San Francisco Department of Environment, Lauren Hennessy, Outreach Manager with Sustainable Stanford, and Diana Deem, founder of Trash on Your Back and a radio host. Lauren Hennessy, composting at Stanford? We actually have a pretty high ability to accept composting, but it is a voluntary composting program right now. So the buildings on campus actually have to elect to participate at a building-wide level. So unless you have that champion who's willing to do it, or um, there is an opportunity with the Recycle Mania campaign, we actually gave an individual the opportunity to become a compost captain for their floor. So it is on a voluntary basis right now. It's not a mandatory composting program. Diana Deem, you're from Orange County. How much composting is happening in Orange County? Still getting, it's not there yet. Yeah. 
Kevin Drew, why not? Why, why don't well, it's, it's cost? Is it? it? It's just really political will. I mean, when you think about garbage or trash, the trucks are there. They drive around. They pick it up. I, I like to tell, tell people it's just about driving it to a different location. It's right. in the same truck. It weighs about the same. There are some programs in Orange County that uh, friends of ours have started, and they focused on restaurants and, and grocery stores first because that's what we did. It's just where the concentration is, and you don't have to drive around and pick up a thimbleful. You can pick up a lot in a restaurant and a uh, produce store, and then you can kind of expand from there. So there's many good examples like that, and it's happening. There's more happening than you know because the industrial people don't want to pay to throw it into landfill. That's very expensive. Right. You can pay less and go to a compost facility, and you avoid all that methane. So when I'm at SFO and I see the bin that says recycled off-site, I go, right. yeah, right. Very good story there. Actually, South San Francisco Scavenger just built the second anaerobic digester. It's called a dry anaerobic digester. It's kind of like a barn, and they take that material. They sort out the contaminants and take the organics, and they don't compost it. They put it into a, like a barn, close the doors, and let it sit there for 21 days. They sprinkle a little bit of uh, an enzyme that helps stimulate it, but you get basically rotting going on in that pile. And they pull off the methane. After 21 days, they pull it out, and then they compost what's left. It's a very interesting technique, different than the wet anaerobic digestion that people may be familiar with at sewage treatment plants. And anaerobic being without oxygen? Right, right. Okay. Lauren Hennessy, what impact does commodity prices have on the economics of recycling? Pretty significant. We actually do get paid for the tonnage that we send to recycling and composting. So our paper, for instance, is pretty pristine in a university setting. So we get a very high rate for our paper. We say we pay twice if you throw something in the landfill, because not only are you paying to landfill it, but you're also losing mm. the cost that you would receive back in payment for your goods. So, so there's cash in the waste. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. A lot. Yeah, I mean, commodity prices make a huge difference. What we really need to see is certain things like organics and other products become commodities. I think that's what's mm-hmm. happening with organics. It was perceived as and trash. And when you say organics here, you're talking about food and other things. Organic really means anything with or, you know, Well, it doesn't mean. It's, I, guess, <laughs> I mean, you know, petroleum is organic when you, when you get right down to it. But what we usually mean is something that was alive in, recently. Uh, that can be <laughs> I can see some oil, hundred, some oil last, companies last, are going to use that clip. You're going to be in some oil company ads here. They're pretty, uh, Diana Deem, a lot of kids, certain generations, learned recycling from their parents. Maybe the current kids are learning composting the way you and I learned recycling. Mm-hmm. But tell us how kids are getting involved in your campaign. One of the things I love to say is, is love them, educate them, and get the heck out of the way. Kids get it. K-12 through students, they know that there's an issue. Right? And it's thanks to our teachers, it's thanks to our parents, it's thanks to the messaging that we're getting out there. I think media is so important to get this message out there. We've had some kids come back with some amazing statements on what they've learned in just collecting their trash to understand what their own personal impact mm-hmm. is. Then what happens, which is really interesting, they go to their parents and they say, you know what, Mommy, Daddy, we're only going to buy compostable or, or recycled products. That's the power of the pocketbook that these kids are getting. It's pretty interesting. Let's talk about another institution that's getting it. You say that the Super Bowl was really zero waste. Talk about professional sports. One of your friends is doing a super green stadium for the Atlanta Falcons. So let's talk about the professional sports, which really has a big influence on pop culture. Huge. And that's like the music and the sports and the, you know, doing something crazy like carrying a trash in your back. Scott Jenkins, he was the um, operations director for, or VP or something, for the Seattle Mariners. And if you think about a stadium, it's a city in itself, right? Mm. City in itself. So he was able to start down the path, and um, the Seattle Mariners became zero waste three years ago. No, I'm sorry, 98% zero waste. So they go back in their supply chain, they look at what they're buying, and then they'll take that, and when you go into the stadium, whether it's a hot dog, it's going to be compostable, whether it's a, a container, the supply chain now says nothing goes to landfill. So Major League Sports is getting major league involved (laughs) and they're getting very competitive how do we make a net zero stadium and how do we make it 100 percent zero waste Mm -hmm. so there's a lot happening and when you go in there as a fan you experience that feeling plus they're making money at it right this this whole trash on your back piece you know 4.4 pounds of trash per day right we knocked that down to 0.8 pounds per day that's an 82 percent reduction 
the U.S. spends $12 billion a year in waste management, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't we rather put that in schools and, and compost facilities? Mm-hmm. And, that's, you know, <laughs> that's what we're doing. That's, what, that's, that's the movement, and, and it's, it's really gratifying to hear it moving into the sports area, into the kids' schools and all that, because it's, it's felt a little bit like a precious thing here in San Francisco, yeah. the Bay Area, is from, you know, kind of the hippie dream. But it's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's being normalized. It's being uh, really globalized, I think. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. One quick question. Uh, you had mentioned the idea of getting to zero waste. I mean, I know that during World War II, the country got to essentially zero waste because it was needed for the war effort. Does anybody have any, any thoughts on what the inclusion of plastics into our consumer system, how that affects the possibility of that even happening again? So, Kevin Drew, there's all these plastics, all these numbers on them that people my age can't see. We don't know what they mean. And we don't know if compostable is really compostable. It's very different than the 1940s. We didn't have McDonald's and a lot of things then. Right. No, I mean, actually, I was born in 1952, and plastics only existed in my lifetime. And all the plastic that's been made in my lifetime is still here. It's either in the ocean, it's on the ground, or it's been incinerated, it's in the air in particle form. It is a real a tremendous challenge. On the other hand, it is recyclable. I mean, it is a product that, once separated, can be dealt with. I think we've got to stop using it for 30 seconds in a, you know, in a plastic bag and five minutes in a, in a bottle that, that will last 5,000 years. So that is one of the big challenges. But I think, I think people are on to plastic, really. Uh, California has done tremendous things in the last few years, and San Francisco has helped lead the way with that, with plastic bag bans and plastic materials in, in food service being banned. Uh, so I, it, it's a long ways off, but I think it's still, we've got to get there. And you're seeing, again, the kids lead the way. California's in a drought. We're talking about water at, at pretty much all of our Climate One programs. Diana Deem, mm-hmm. you have this idea, I think you actually did it, of no water for a day. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, I mean... I have these 10 planetary challenges, and I'm awake at night thinking about different crazy ideas to come out and carry your trash or really bring it home, right? How do we really bring it home? So I did. I just decided one day I'm not going to have any water for a day, no shower, no coffee. You know, I brushed my teeth with just toothpaste, you know, and I wanted to feel what it felt like, and it felt horrible. But you know what I did do? I started, you know, grapefruits. That was my Mm -hmm. way that I could get liquid in my body. But it makes you really think about... Um, you know what our what our liquid is. The other one was um, that that is about to be introduced, and I'll let it out here. Is uh, no flush Fridays. Mm. <laughs> you see Irvine, my dear friend Bill Cooper. He's the Urban Water Institute director there. He and I got into this incredible conversation on air about what if we just didn't flush the toilet for one day? What would happen? Seriously. And, and I was like, oh, my gosh, we could do that. <laughs> so those are the two challenges we should do. But the, the no water for a day, really try that. It's hard. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. I had a question about regulations, possibly federal regulations, so that things are more uniform across the country. Because it's one thing to teach kids and families how to separate their garbage and compost in the Bay Area. You go somewhere else, there's entirely different standards. I'm wondering if there's anything being worked on at the federal level. Kevin Drew? At the federal level, I haven't heard specifically that, but a colleague of ours here, Lisa Gautier from Matter of Trust, is actually in Paris pitching the idea of a global uniform color scheme for our trash stream, for our resource stream, because it really is a resource stream. So, I mean, it's, it's out there. I think it's, it's something that we just aren't quite there yet in this country, but um, we should bring it up at EPA. Greg Dalton has been talking to Kevin Drew, Residential Zero Waste Coordinator of the San Francisco Department of Environment, Lauren Hennessy, Outreach Manager at Sustainable Stanford, and Diana Dean, a sustainability consultant. We'd like to hear your ideas on getting to zero. Our email is climateone at commonwealthclub.org. Or let us know on Twitter. Our handle is at climateone. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Getting to net zero means making the switch from dirty fossil fuels to clean alternative energy sources. 
But in most areas of the country, there's one big utility and no way to choose what kind of energy they're delivering to your light bulb. North of San Francisco, the counties of Marin and Sonoma are providing a green alternative to PG&E, the local utility. Let's see how they're doing. To help us out, Greg talked to Matthew Friedman, an attorney at the consumer advocacy group TURN, the Utility Reform Network, Jeff Cyphers, CEO of Sonoma Clean Power, and Don Weiss, CEO of Marin Clean Energy. Here's our conversation about choosing green energy. I'd like to start with Don Wise. Why did Marin embark on this path to make its own energy to run the hot tubs up there? (laughs) Well, the reason that we went to all this trouble, and it was a lot of trouble, was climate change. Um, We conducted a GHG inventory, a greenhouse gas inventory, in the late 90s and set a target for greenhouse gas reduction that was pretty aggressive. And then we set out to determine how we could achieve that goal. And we only had one choice of power supply. At that time, it was less than 12% renewable. The rest of it was, was fossil or, or um, nuclear or large hydro. And um, we went to our supplier at that time to see if we could have another choice for a greener supply mix. And because that wasn't an option, we looked to see what, what other options we might have. And uh, around that time, there was a bill, AB 117, state legislation, enabling community choice. Community choice is a state initiative that allows local governments to become the power purchasers for their communities. Well, this sounded like a pretty good idea. So we pursued this idea for many years before launching in 2010. And um, it's been really exciting to see the big impacts that we can make in climate change really at the flip of a switch when customers start getting supply from us that's twice as renewable as they were getting before. What climate impact have you achieved? We've been able to um, reduce greenhouse gas emissions dramatically. Our greenhouse gas emissions are 17% lower than the incumbent utility. And it's also resulting in a lot of new renewables being built around the state of California. And um, we are going to see a lot of local jobs that are being developed right now. Jeff Seifers, you're sitting up in Sonoma, looked at this and said, uh, we're going to do it too. So why are you doing it and how are you doing it differently? Well, we followed on the heels of Marin's success and uh, it was really actually valuable to have their, their example to get going. It's always best to be second. Early on, we were focused on the percentage of renewable energy in our mix. We started to realize that demand reductions, that's how much power you're using and when, that matters as much as where your power is coming from. It's really not how much renewables we add, it's how much fossil we turn off. That's the goal. Adding renewables itself is a tool, but it's not the goal. So when we realized that, it broadened how we were thinking about things a lot. And so we have a default service that's 36% renewable, but it's 80% carbon-free. And we also have a voluntary premium product called Evergreen that's 100% renewable and 100% local. So it's made in Sonoma County. And that was one of the new things we experimented with. I should note that PG&E declined our invitation to join this program, citing state rules that prevent California's big three utilities from talking about startup competitors. Matthew Friedman, is this a good deal for consumers? Well, both Marin and Sonoma are offering very economically competitive alternatives to PG&E. So when customers are switching, they're either staying the same or they're even saving money on their bills. But I think what customers really want to know is, does their choice end up being meaningful? Are there actually less carbon emissions? because you made this choice? Or is this just an exercise in folks taking credit for stuff that's already happening? I think there the jury is out, because so far, the vast majority of the transactions that have been done on behalf of customers of community choice aggregators have been short-term transactions from existing facilities that haven't actually changed any of the output on the system. Don Wise, are you making new things happen, or are you just taking credit for things that would happen anyways? We are absolutely making new things happen. 26 new renewable projects that we're buying power from. These are all projects that didn't exist before we were there to buy them. And only three of them are short-term. So the remainder of those are long-term, meaning 10-year or more. Most of our contracts are in the 20- and 25-year time frame. Matthew Friedman? These are marketing claims that are legal, so no one's breaking any rules. But you have to look a lot deeper. You have to look to see if, for example, Marin and Sonoma hadn't bought tradable credits from a wind farm in Idaho, 
would that wind farm still have operated? Did it change the profile of that facility? Was less fossil power actually produced? And in most cases, the answer is no. Pretty much the grid is the same as it was before. Um, the meaningful test for whether or not things are changing is if new investments are made and new facilities are constructed. That's really the meaningful test. Jeff Cyphers, your system in Sonoma relies less on these tradable instruments out of state power than Marin. Is, is that true? We decided to launch with 33% renewable, excluding any renewable certificates. And what that means is we've already met the 2020 goal that the investor-owned utilities like PG&E are trying to achieve right out of the gate. And so that, to me, that argument is kind of a non sequitur because Anything that we've ever done with certificates, we haven't taken greenhouse gas credit for, and I believe we're the only ones who've done that, including the utilities. So I'm unclear what the problem is because we're far beyond any of the utilities. Yeah, I, Don I, Wise? Yeah, I'd just like to add, um, we currently have 186 megawatts of renewable energy in our portfolio. Our average load is 240 megawatts. So on a sunny and windy day anyway, we're producing um, over 70% of our supply from renewables. Granted, a couple of these projects are new, and they wouldn't be showing up in our 2014 report, but I think the numbers you stated were were really um, uh, understated quite a bit. As the first community choice program in the state, we've been subjected to a lot of scrutiny and a lot of misinformation, and that's unfortunate because it, it does a disservice to the public. The out-of-state Recs that, that were referenced earlier are, uh, as so Jeff said... Renewable they, energy credits, right? Renewable Swift energy credits. They are um, what's used when you buy an out-of-state renewable product. We used more of those at the beginning when we were in the process of building new local projects because you can't start a program and have all your resources built from day one. We've been operating for five years now, and we've transitioned to this year only having 15% of our energy supplied from these tradable recs from out of state. Next year, we'll be at 3%. So again, it seems like a non-issue. Some people think it's an issue, Don Wise, that Shell Oil is involved in supplying electricity to Marin. What do people in Marin think about that? Well, when we were initially launching our program, we had specific requirement of minimum 25% renewable energy. Shell Energy was able to offer us a 25% renewable product. And in order to get our program off the ground, that was the path forward. That was the only path forward. But since entering into a contract with them, we've added more than 30 different power supply contracts to our portfolio. So we have multiple suppliers. I think that sometimes individuals misunderstand that because Shell Energy is handling some of our scheduling, that we're actually buying that quantity of power from them. But when power is scheduled onto the grid, that's very different than actually being sourced from that party. But the majority of our power now is coming from many other suppliers. We're talking about Community Choice Power at Climate One. Our guests are Don Wise from Marin Clean Energy, Jeff Cyphers from Sonoma Clean Power, and Matthew Friedman from the Utility Reform Network. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, when people get email marketing, they want to opt in. Jeff Cyphers, that's the tradition that people don't like to have to opt out. But in these community power programs, people are automatically enrolled and they have to opt out. Is that the right way to do it? Uh, yes, it absolutely is. Default service is how we finance a community choice program. So if you, if you don't own default service and the local folks don't control that, you can't go to a bank and borrow money, and you can't buy energy. So if you change default service, you'll never see more of these again. Matthew Friedman, you got a problem with opt-in, opt-out? No, I agree with Jeff, actually. If you don't have the current system where customers have to affirmatively opt-out, local power is simply non-viable. Just the transaction costs of identifying, marketing to customers, signing them up, they're prohibitive. It can cost several hundred dollars for every small customer that you bring onto your service, and you can't make that up in any reasonable period of time. And that's why the model of asking customers to sign up one at a time simply doesn't work. There's too many costs in the system that make it a, a really a not an attractive proposition to almost anybody. And put it in perspective. Everyone was defaulted into the distribution utility called PG&E. They had no choice to leave. Now they're being defaulted into a local provider they have more say in, and they can leave. So it's really an improvement. And once customers see that, they get it. And uh, Jeff Cipher is in Marin and Sonoma. How many people have gone through the door, exited, opted out of the, the clean program? We have a hair over 10% who've opted out after 15, 16 months. And uh, we think it'll trend up to about 12%. We had the advantage of going second. 
Marin went first. They had a very aggressive marketing campaign. Yeah, we had a very aggressive marketing campaign that even involved phone banking and lots of mailers um, with a lot of misinformation. We see about a 20% opt-out rate, and frequently folks that have chosen to opt-out did so initially during that marketing campaign and uh, you know, haven't changed their mind since then. Matthew Friedman, big story about moving toward more renewable electricity in California. So what happened on that front? Governor Brown got a big win there. Yeah, well, in the final evening of the legislative session, the legislature passed SB 350, which is incredible, a 50 percent renewable energy requirement by 2030. Right now, state law requires all the utilities, the community choice aggregators, municipal utilities, all sellers of electricity to get to 33 percent by 2020. Well, this law will expand that, make it the most aggressive renewable energy requirement in the country, 50 percent by 2030. It's a huge win for climate. It's a huge win for clean energy, and it provides a massive new set of market opportunities for new technologies, new solar, wind, geothermal, biomass technologies. It will promote innovation, and it will keep prices reasonable over the long run for customers. Did the utilities fight this? Um, The utilities were all opposed to this bill up until really the final days of the legislative session when they knew that they would be on the wrong side of history if they didn't flip their position. This is a classic thing that the utilities have done in every iteration of these requirements as they've come close to being enacted into law. That's kind of a marketing pitch. Don Wise, the little known thing is that the utilities don't make much money on electricity that they generate. They make money on distribution and managing the grid. So if that's the case, why are they fighting these new competitors if they're not really taking money out of their uh, balance sheet? Well, we actually saw uh, PG&E supporting community choice in our community up until 2006 because they had disinvested in all of their generation resources. But in 2006, they made a business decision to begin reinvesting in some natural gas-fired power plants and some other generation resources. And at that time, I think they began to be concerned about the competition for those generation customers. But really, you know, if the focus could be on the transmission and distribution system and making sure that that system is reliable and safe, um, that would be a great way for, for them to focus their efforts and we could continue to partner and provide the generation choices in our community so that customers have more than one choice. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, I just wanted to know if you find that there's an internal conflict between all the work that you're doing in, in Marin and Sonoma for energy efficiency work And the fact that um, the more power that you purchase, the stronger you are. So I read something about the possibility of energy efficiency utilities solely dedicated to energy efficiency work. And I'm wondering what you think about that. They're a brilliant idea. Um, If we end up getting to a point where all of our customers are zero net energy, we can buy less energy until we get to that point. And then we can retire and have a great vacation, which uh, would be a great outcome for me anyway. (laughs) Um, I think that the energy efficiency programs that we're currently running have really focused on affordable housing and the small commercial sector, but I think there's a lot more that we can do as far as automation and shifting load to different times of the day where customers can really take advantage when there's a lot of extra power on the grid, when there's a lot of renewables being generated, and, you know, even out the load that we see during the day. I think energy efficiency is a big piece of the puzzle, and um, we're spending a lot of time and energy on energy efficiency. Let's go to our next question. So oil prices have stayed low for more than a year, and it seems like it will stay for another year given the global recession going on. Obviously, the U.S. is doing well, but there is a supply of oil and not so much demand for it because economically the world is quite weak. How do you think this will affect the energy mix in California and in the U.S.? So we don't burn oil in this country to make electricity anymore, but Matthew Friedman? Yeah, but we do use a lot of natural gas, and natural gas prices are also quite low. But what's happening in California is quite interesting. Really, the energy mix is being driven at a policy level, which is to say that state law is driving all of the utilities and the community choice aggregators and everyone who's in the market to green their energy mix through a combination of renewable energy requirements and carbon prices on power that's trading in the California mix, And that combination, along with, I'd say, just a great amount of political will that's trickling down at all levels, is forcing all of the retailers in the state of California to focus on how they can make their new resource additions not reliant on natural gas. And the idea is that the gas plants, to the maximum extent possible, will serve as a backup 
to the clean renewable energy capacity that's being brought online. The transition is not perfect. It's definitely bumpy, but this is the basic idea, and I think we're making progress. Jeff Cyphers? And we cut our natural gas use by half, and our rates are lower than PG&E's by 8%. So there's a lot of room out there in the market. Next question. Last question. Welcome. We heard about Tesla and this new idea of the power wall. And if this is a concept that can get off the ground, how do you see this concept of a power wall being installed in people's homes affecting your business? Is this something you can partner with? How do you see this going forward affecting your guys' attempts to provide power when there's, you know, holes in the grid, you know, if it's cloudy or not sunny? Who wouldn't want one of those cool things in their garage? Yeah, we've actually been partnering with Tesla um, for a couple of years now, and we were able to install a a commercial battery storage unit in one of our local colleges, and it allows them to shave their peak demand during times when um, their usage is high. We've been working with them also on the residential power wall deployment, and in order to facilitate the interest in that in our community, we've adopted a battery storage rate tariff that gives customers an incentive payment to install a battery and allow us to use it for deployment a little bit during the day, for about 30 minutes of the day. And this will have some benefits to the grid. It will allow the state of California to incorporate more renewables, and um, it'll be good for the consumer as well because they end up with some uh, backup reliability. So we think this is a really exciting piece of the future market that we're going to see ahead of us, and we're really excited to see the next steps. Greg Dalton has been discussing green energy choices with Matthew Friedman, an attorney at the consumer advocacy group TURN, Jeff Cyphers, CEO of Sonoma Clean Power, and Don Weiss, CEO of Marin Clean Energy. Free podcasts of all our Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org. You'll also find video clips, photos, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineers are John Rieger and William Bloom. I'm Claire Schoen, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio. Mm-hmm.